Hey everybody, welcome back again to Engaging the Phenomenon and returning as a special guest, we have Joseph Burks, MD, um, who I did uh, several interviews with prior. So uh, if you'd like, go back in the podcast and the YouTube channel and look for our previous uh, talks and interviews and discussions because this is going to be something of an ongoing series. So welcome, Dr. Joe. Welcome to you all out there in YouTube land and also the podcast. Yeah, so today we are going to cover uh, uh, a number of events um, or subjects, but I, we're going to start off with heists. So, uh, Dr. Burks, just for people listening who may not be familiar with the term heist, H-I-C-E, what does that mean? What it means is human-initiated contact event, H-I-C-E, and it's an alternative term for CE5 that has certain merits. Uh, one of which is that the term itself describes what it is. You have to remember that um, people all over the world are getting uh, informed about the possibilities of human initiated contact. Some of them may not be aware of the close encounter designations which were set up by Jalen Hynek, a tenured professor of astronomy, as at one through three, which I assume the audience knows, uh, close encounter of the first kind, a sighting within 500 feet, structured object, close encounters of the second kind, where there's some physical evidence like uh, uh, radiation. Uh, the close encounter of the third kind is where a being is seen, and Jacques Vallée uh, introduced the close encounters of the fourth kind, so-called abduction, in which a human is removed from that individual's personal environment. So when Stephen Greer set up, that was a director of the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, when he set up what he called the CE5 initiate, initiative, he wanted to build it on top of the existing categories as a way of uh, basically taking on the mantle of a scientific investigation. As we discuss uh, today and in future talks, I will put forward the position that human initiated contact events are not really, do not really fit well within a scientific paradigm. Uh, and I'll explain that in detail uh, at a later time. But there's also the issue of the CE5 initiative being in, inextricably linked with Dr. Stephen Greer. And as we discussed previously, uh, doc, there's two camps, uh, quite polarized, and he is a very polarizing and, in my view, a, a very divisive individual at this time. There are those people who um, believe he um, can do no wrong. Grant Cameron said once that people thought after the 2001 disclosure event, which was seen by millions of people, the disclosure project, he could walk on water, I guess referring to uh, Jesus, and he's a, <laughs> he's a messiah. <clears throat> type individual, uh, and people are quite eager to follow him. Then there are those who are very critical of some of the conspiratory theories, conspiratorial theories that he puts forward without any meaningful substantiation, uh, his personal uh, failings in terms of what people identify as unethical business activities, and the disrespect that he's consistently shown for people who are working with him closely. Uh, that said, 
we would not be having this conversation if it wasn't for the efforts of Stephen Greer. I was recruited by him. And for the first uh, five years of my work in this field, I was, I was a close associate and supporter of him, donating money, leading workshops to recapitulate his organizing efforts, which did establish a limited network of contact teams all across the Western United States in the years 1992 to 1997. However, there were conflicts between us. Uh, eventually they reached the point where I resigned from the organization. They were political, they were personal, and they were professional disagreements we had. Now, I'm willing to uh, discuss one or two of those categories. I'll leave the personal stuff out because there's just too much uh, cat fighting going on in the UFO field. But the political disagreements had to do with his relationship to the intelligence services uh, who I believe have fed him a combination of accurate information and disinformation. And for people who wanna read more about that, it's not just Joe Burke's putting forward, the best discussion of this comes from the excellent book and many videos that Grant Cameron has done called Managing Magic. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So the CE5 initiative carries the baggage of being associated with Stephen Greer. Uh, one prominent contact activist called it a stigma. Uh, Jay from Project Unity, a CE5 term. So the human initiated contact event has the advantage of saying what it is, not being linked to what I believe is a pseudoscientific set of categories, CE1 through four. And also uh, it, people all over the world who may not be working, uh, may not have access to the internet will know immediately by the term what it means. So I, I'm proposing this as an alternative term for people to use uh, for the reasons I've just outlined, human-initiated contact event. Uh, and uh, just just for, for people listening, um, Heist has been brought up, um, you know, several times over the last few years, um, most definitely, yes, you know, with CE5 on social networking. Um, so why... why um, human initiated contact events rather than human initiated contact experience? I think when we talk about experience, it's a very, very broad category. It's, it can be as much as uh, having a dream, and, uh, it, uh, which is an experience uh, or an out of body experience. But when we say human initiated contact event, that suggests a physicality to it, and also the possibility of multiple witnesses being present. So I think that's a stronger term because in my opinion, uh, the network of contact activists all over the world that are carrying out human initiated contact events are the nucleus of what I imagine will be a future peace and social justice movement that will carry out a worldwide campaign to link the UFO phenomena to possible solutions to the fundamental challenges that are facing our civilization. And I'll get into that a little more in terms of the ideology behind HICE. But for, for me, because I have a background um, in the peace and social justice movements of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you can hear about more details in the first talk we did where I enumerated all the organizations I played a role in, that. When I first joined the CE5 initiative and carried out human initiated contact events, staging them, 
it was clear in my mind from the very beginning that this was a potential peace movement. Because what is the ultimate peace movement? On earth, it's peace on earth, eliminating war as a human endeavor. And this is possible. Just as humans engaged in ritual sacrifice in ancient times, it was outlawed. In the ancient civilizations and the New World, the Aztecs during one orgy killed thousands of conquered warriors and cut out their hearts and worshiped and, and offered them to the sun god. That kind of ritual human sacrifice was forever banned. Similarly, we, in years past, women who were healers during the dark ages in Europe were burnt as witches. And it's estimated that perhaps 2 million women over several centuries were burnt alive for, this, for the crime of engaging in healing activities using herbs that the church fathers and their male chauvinistic rule uh, deemed as criminal and sacrilege. That is also ended. And for generations, for thousands of years, actually, there was chattel slavery on this planet where people were held in chains and were owned as property. That has ended to a great extent. Although some people say there's wage slavery, people are not owned. So if human civilization can advance to eliminate routine sacrifice, ritual sacrifice, the oppression of women healers, uh, ending chattel slavery, people held in chains, then we can also look to a future where we can end war. Uh, and I believe that message is inherent in the contact experience because it's clear to me that whatever these civilizations are that are interacting with us, these wonders in the skies, there's also mental interactions, war is not on their agenda. They've been here for not only generations, but more likely centuries or eons. This is an ancient phenomenon. And if they were tending to promote war, oh, humanity would have seen a, a clear-cut manifestation of that. And this probably has to do with the fact that these advanced cultures, whether they be extraterrestrial, which is certainly controversial, it's a popular notion, or from another dimension close to us, these cultures are totally telepathic. And their science of consciousness matches, perhaps even exceeds, the science of building craft that we identify as flying saucers or now the new term that's in vogue, unidentified aerial phenomena. So, so that's why I'd like to use the word heist to sort of make a clear cut separation from, to rebrand human initiated contact, to separate it out from Stephen Greer, who uh, is in terms of what he brings to the table, a very mixed, uh, somewhat problematic uh, situation. Yeah, understood. And now um, getting to the, the, the human initiated contact events, you have had um, some very interesting ones over the, the years. Um, so would you like to go over some of your first encounters uh, in the early 90s with the uh, human in initiated contact events? Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, uh, important. I'm gonna talk a little bit about where we did our field work. And it was, uh, back then it was pretty isolated. It was in the Northwestern corner of Los Angeles County in a place called the Santa Susana Pass. It's a place of high desert. It's about 600 to 1,000 feet, 2,000 feet in elevation. And there's uh, some mountains in the area. But it was also, our research site was less than three miles 
from the Department of Energy site, DOE, in the Santa Susana Pass, which is very significant uh, because of what happened to us in the past uh, and other kinds of uh, uh, interactions, not just sightings, but also the clear-cut presence of surveillance of, shall we say, uh, security officers probably from the base. So what happened was Dr. Stephen Greer uh, led us in a demonstration of field work. We were perched on this enormous football field ledge uh, that had a tremendous view of the Santa Monica Mountains, the entire San Fernando Valley to stretching out a myriad of lights. And the first night we were in the field, a golden globe appeared uh, in the Western skies around sunset. Now, in terms of reviewing field work skills, golden globes sometimes can be uh, totally prosaic in the sense that if you see a jet aircraft coming in and they do, and in this location, they were coming in from the, from the west, which is the main route, flying across the San Fernando Valley and then swinging around to Los Angeles and then coming into LAX. Jetliners, if seen from 40 or 50 miles away, when they turn on their forward lights, will have a kind of amber uh, picture, uh, appearance to them. Uh, so you have to be very careful. But we had uh, jet pilot, Joe Vallejo was on our team, Captain Vallejo, 747 pilot for United Airlines. It was clear that this Golden Globe was not lights coming in uh, from a uh, jet aircraft. Because if you follow the Golden Globe and it's a jet aircraft, after a while you will see the craft go overhead or if you see it turn, you'll be able to see its uh, uh, strobe lights on, on either wing. So this was a clear manifestation of contact, uh, sighting of, an, of a golden globe. The next month, my team had a wealth of contact experiences that were so fast, it was almost bewildering. And some of them were of high strangeness. I'll talk, uh, now we've, I'm gonna be talking about the virtual experience model throughout my presentations. And I'll be developing that theme as we go along for people who want to learn more about the virtual experience model. It's written up in a book that's coming out later on this year. A Greater Reality is the name of the book. I have a chapter where I get into great detail about the virtual experience model. Also the consciousness connection. Virtual experience model is a hypothesis that puts forward that some, many, but certainly not all UFO sightings are holographic in nature. Uh, they don't necessarily represent structured objects, but projections, and you can think of them as a visual display. So that's a virtual experience of the first kind. Now, eventually in our discussion, we'll talk about a virtual experience of the first kind that is non-holographic, but is caused by stimulation, energetic stimulation of the sensory apparatus of the individual who's seeing the UFO. And one of the amazing things about my journey is that the intelligence behind the phenomena took me through a series of contact experiences, almost like show and tell, like what the little kids have in elementary school. They showed me how they use illusion as a mechanism of contact. And one of those illusory mechanism is, is to stimulate the sensory apparatus energetically with some kind of electromagnetism perhaps, so that one person on the team will have a sighting 
and it's real time, they can see it perfectly, a flying saucer of a, like a golden globe, or as was the case, I'll be discussing later, a purple flying saucer was seen by one member of the team, others looking at the exact same field of sky saw nothing. So this is a very important teaching point for all contact activists, so that we should be aware that some people may be seeing things that others not, not that they're delusional, not that they're lying, but that this is a technology that exists, is operational, and we need to learn about it as we go through our contact work. Yeah, and just just for in layman terms from everybody, um, he's basically saying, uh, Dr. Burks is saying that UFO intelligence has the ability to implant or in, in your awareness or in your field of vision, um, things that aren't occurring physically right there in, in kind of like consensus reality. So UFO intelligence has the ability to put visions in your mind, so to speak, so that you act, think you're seeing something out there in front of you, but it's really within your mind. So I, I just wanted to. Yeah, I, that's one way of putting it. Uh, as from the neurophysiological point of view, uh, vision is, is created by the, the brain. In, in, so, so all visual experience is ultimately explicable as a mechanism of neurophysiology, whether it be representing an object or in the first case, a hologram, which is a projection and everyone can see that in the field or directly stimulating the visual apparatus, the retina, occipital lobes were the visual material. This is a very sophisticated point, but I think it's important that contact workers have the best information as they engage the phenomena. So that's why I'm spending a little bit of time getting into it right now. Now, the other categories are perhaps even more disturbing uh, for contact workers and for the larger society. A virtual experience of the second kind is a full sensory illusion this is akin to what we imagine, uh, what was portrayed, I should say, in the movie, The Matrix. And I won't get into that. There are cases in the literature that support this as operational. And the final category is virtual experience of the third kind, which is virtual memory. This intelligence has the capability of implanting memories in contact experiencers that are vivid, as real as what you imagined you had for what you recall, I should say, what you had for breakfast this morning, but do not represent actual physical events. Now, you might say this is astounding, this is impossible. Yes, for terrestrial science, it is, but already terrestrial science using rat models and animals have been able to implant memories into uh, experimental animals. And at some future program, uh, if I'm able, I'll get into some of the scientific literature that shows how scientists are now creating virtual memory in lab rats. And if they can do it in the 21st century, uh, a civilization that's a thousand or a hundred thousand or 10 million years more advanced than our culture, I believe can certainly do that uh, with human subjects. But so that's the virtual experience model in, in a nutshell. So what led me to this experience? Well, the first week I started doing contact uh, with my team in the Santa Susana Pass, the high desert. I was driving home from the emergency room. I was working emergency at that time, like Dr. Greer, though my training was internal medicine. I did have a position for 10 years in the ER. We called it ambulance area. 
And so as I'm driving home five o'clock in the afternoon from work, and we've already had our first sightings in this high desert region, uh, I'm getting onto the 405 freeway and I look uh, to the freeway and I see something that's absolutely impossible. It was a fire engine painted red, wooden sort of World War II style aircraft. It had a propeller, but it was totally absurd. It had a, looked like a prop from a circus, a kind of a, a circus routine where when I was a child and we'd go to Ringling Brothers where the three ring circuses, they'd have a group of small people uh, who would be inside a, a, a make-believe plane and ten, five or six of them would pour out of the plane. It looked like a prop. The wings were short, eight feet only. Uh, the craft did not ha have uh, a canopy, the, the, the hood that pilot sits in. It did not have a windshield. And in fact, there was no pilot in this craft that was 15 feet long, clearly made out of wood and was flying only about 45 or 50 miles an hour with these short stubby wings. From an, aeronomic, from an aerodynamic point of view, it was impossible. This was the first clue. I believe this was a staged event that UFO intelligence was trying to show me. Seeing may be believing, but don't necessarily believe everything you see is a physical object. That was an impossible, uh, that was, it wasn't a UFO, it was an IFO, impossible flying object. Uh, and it's just, it's just an important note, actually, just people who were talking about on UFO Twitter the other day uh, that Dr. Davis had, had mentioned before and, and kind of like the bass research that a UFO intelligence has the ability to basically mimic, uh, you know, terrestrial technology in, in a manner to disguise itself in some events. So this is kind of a, uh, a mixture of that in a sense. Yes, yes, this was definitely a disguise or staged illusion in my judgment. Right. So my team had a, a series of sightings the first month, uh, some of which involved a degree of high strangeness, uh, as well as a consciousness connection with the phenomena. We set up our research laboratory, uh, like as I mentioned, uh, at that time, the Department of Energy site was still active. Uh, and we had this tremendous view of the San Fernando Valley on, on a platform that was enormous. And during the first nights, we started seeing, uh, as even as we were walking to our research site at twilight, uh, red orbs that were floating to the north of us. Now, to the north of our site was the 118 freeway, but it was blocked by a hill. So we had some security in terms of being able to have interactions or sightings without everyone driving by the freeway. There was this hill. And then on the other side of the freeway was a sheer cliff and going up about 600 feet. And that was part of Rocky Peak State Park, uh, which was a day use only park at the time. So our team uh, set up our research site. And while we're meditating, uh, some high strangest events occurred, one of which was silent lightning uh, like flashes coming from the sky, but there was no lightning reported in the area. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, night turned into day. Uh, and this happened repeatedly. Uh, I had my eyes closed initially when this blast of light occurred, no thunder associated with it, totally silent. The second time I witnessed it with my eyes open, 
Whereas before you couldn't see anything around us, it was full darkness. All of a sudden, the entire, it was like broad daylight. The entire uh, field around us was completely illuminated as far as we could see, it was, it was quite brilliant. This happened repeatedly. So this was a high strangest event. Now, the, the red orbs that we were witnessing were to the north of us, past the freeway and at a place called Rocky Peak State Park. And these orbs would go up and down and up and down below the ridge line repeatedly. One orb that we saw was actually at twilight and it seemed to slowly drift, totally silent uh, from the north, slowly drifting towards the Department of Energy site to the south or west of us. So we were quite excited about uh, these, these sightings. One highly anomalous event occurred uh, the first or second time we were out in the field. Now, back in the old days, uh, we uh, had a series of protocols that involved the designation of a safety zone. We had a buddy system as well, which we used because the C5 initiative was very new then. Uh, we were operating with people who weren't necessarily skilled hikers. Uh, and we wanted to have a buddy system in case someone had to go to the bathroom, there would be someone aware where they were going and that it was safe because there were cactus, snakes, uh, there were these, so much of our field work was done in high desert locations where there were fall offs where people could actually get hurt uh, wandering around in the dark. So the buddy system was part of a way of helping people deal not only with the physical dangers, but also to have the reassurance of a mate or a buddy uh, because when high strangest events occurred, uh, the surprising nature of it had the capacity to make people afraid. And, and this is another issue that comes up uh, because when we try to talk to people about human initiated, con staging human initiated and content events, the immediate uh, reaction of many people is a fear expression. And this is because within the UFO subculture, uh, we've been for the last 40, 50 years been bombarded nonstop with the, the notion that all contact with extraterrestrial or interdimensional or non-human intelligences occurs within the framework of an abduction, which is a criminal act. And even though the contact workers that we were, we had in our team had high ideals and we believed what we were engaged in was brotherhood and sisterhood made large one planet, one people, one universe, one people, one universe, one people was the slogan of our network. So even though we saw this as um, an engaging engagement with potentially benevolent beings, uh, there was always some doubt in people's minds. Well, what, what really are they like? And so the buddy system helped reassure people. And we had a, a safety zone that was on the other side of the hill. So as, um, which was like this first or second night, as we were breaking up around 11, it was closer to 12.30, as we were coming over the hill and climbing down the hill, we got to our safety zone and then we noticed anomalous lights on the ridge line. Uh, these were powerful lights. Uh, they weren't in the air, but they were in a place that there was no housing. It was the middle of a wilderness state park and they were perched on cliffs that were practically 70, 80, 90 degrees sheer up and down. And one light was directed directly, was pointing directly at us and it was flashing as a strobe quickly. 
Now in those days, we used to use these very primitive halogen lanterns. I, I hate to say the name of the, the device. Yeah. It was called the light bazooka. <laughs> and we'd get them on mail orders and they had this heavy uh, cadmium, uh, lead cadmium, it was not cadmium, it was lead batteries. And they were primitive so that when you fire the light bazooka, it wasn't a strobe by any means. It would take about a, two thirds of a second to build up and maybe a second for the light to extinguish when you release the trigger of the light bazooka. But the lights that were shining at us were highly sophisticated. They were two to three feet across, which was very large, almost like searchlights. And they, had, they could fade in and out gradually over several seconds, which you would call from the electronics point of view a variable rheostat effect. They had a strobe function and they swiveled. They could point in different directions. But the one that was pointing right at us was a brilliant strobe. One of the contact workers that uh, was very helpful to me was Alex Ayers. He was uh, a man in his uh, late 30s, uh, graduate from Harvard. He had a master's degree from, uh, in psychology as well as a master's of fine arts. He was uh, a screenwriter for Hollywood. And prior uh, to us doing field work that night, he got the telepathic message that one way to establish whether we had actual signaling back and forth was to signal at any UFO with a very strict pattern. And what he got telepathically was flash once, wait three seconds, flash twice, wait three seconds, flash three times. And initially I was just firing randomly at the light that was on the ridge line, which was quite strange. We couldn't figure out how anybody got up there. Later on, when we sent scouts up there, we found how it was very, very difficult to get to those two locations. The one light we could identify where it was because it was behind a small uh, uh, shrub that was on a, a little cliff uh, outcropping from the rock phase. So I fired once, waited three seconds, twice, three seconds, three times. The first time, nothing happened. Second time I attempted that pattern, I signaled and immediately I got a strobe. Uh, then I waited three seconds, flash, flash, and immediately strobe, strobe back at me. I waited three seconds, flash, flash, flash. And even before the light was fading from my signal lantern, it took about a second. I was immediately getting back flash, flash, flash at tremendous speed. It, I felt as if there was a, a electrical circuit between my signal lantern and the strobe-like powerful light on the ridgeline. We could not reproduce that kind of signaling with our primitive equipment. So for me, that was a startling consciousness connection that occurred that very first night. Now, one of the lights was lower up on the, on the rock face and I don't know how it was perched because it was almost there was no vegetation. There was, it was just going up at about an 80, 90 degree angle, just solid sandstone rock. That light was pointing to the Southeast. And I, I tried to get attention from that light, but it wouldn't respond. It was signaling and flashing. What had happened was uh, one of the contact workers on my team was Shirley Jones. She was a respiratory therapist 
at the hospital where I worked, which was another kind of astounding synchronicity. When we first attended Dr. Greer's workshop, there were multiple people from the same medical center who happened to show up by chance at the workshop, which was you know, kind of strange. So already I had a team in place of, of co-workers who were interested in the subject. Shirley, an older woman in her 50s at the time, she uh, had a, she was a respiratory therapist. She had to get up early the next day. So she left about a half an hour before us. So as we're on the trail, she was already in her vehicle. She had an Astro van, an old Chevy truck. She was driving it southeast. As she's driving home, uh, at the same time that we're signaling, she feels her car shaking violently. And she and I both spent time in New York City. You probably can hear somewhat of my accent. In any case, uh, she said, Joe, my car was shaking like we were driving back over the potholes in New York and Manhattan. I said, oh, I know what that is. She thought she had blown yeah. a tire, got a, a flat, or had gone over railroad tracks. The car was shaking so much, she finally stopped. And this is now late at night, in mean streets of Los Angeles, a single woman in a relatively desolate area. She looked around, got out of her car to see what was the road hazard that made her car shake so violently. There was nothing in the road. There were no railroad tracks. She did not have a flash tire, flat tire. But when she looked up at the Santa Susana Pass to the Northwest, where we were, she saw that light that we had been signaling across the San Fernando Valley was now signaling directly at her. So you have a high strangeness event where her vehicle was stopped so that she too could see the lights. Now you can say this is all a coincidence, but I think in contact work, you have to be open to the possibility of a consciousness link and events are occurring not on the basis of randomness, but on the basis of interaction. And I believe these initial experiences, contact events, human initiated contact events, clearly demonstrated a consciousness connection. Yeah, and uh, you know, going back to what you were mentioning uh, before, the, the, the light that flashed that made everything like daylight. And um, one of my um, pretty high level contact events that was occurring outside and me and my family were inside and it was lighting up the inside of the house. <laughs> uh, and so it was incredible, you know, almost like something from a movie. And then of course, when we went outside, um, a whole dramatic contact event occurred from there, but also the, the signaling I've had experiences with too, where I, I tried to almost like trick out, not trick out, but just, you know, like, put to put every test out there to say, okay, this is something where I flashed once it flashed back at me. So I said, okay, I flashed three times. I got three flashes. And I'm like, this is too good to be true, too good to be true. So then instead of flashing, I held uh, the light on for um, several seconds and then turned it off. And sure enough, the light in the sky, um, lit up really slow and really bright to, to match the sequence of uh, light that I had. Um, so that was a, a really, you know, again, consciousness link, synchronicity, um, that, totally not a random event. And uh, interesting enough, that was during a, um, it was during one of the blackouts that we had over here. Um, so the, the sky was perfectly dark and clear. So um, that made for an uh, interesting sight. Um, but uh, now getting to, to the, uh, that, that 
contact location in the Department of Energy, right. uh, that there was a uh, interesting event that occurred over there at the Department of Energy where um, you had spoken to an employee over there. Right. So th thank you for uh, sharing your uh, contact experiences that verify this consciousness link interactive component. We used to call it in the old days photon talk. Photon is a particle of light, massless particle, photon talk. So that was, that was exciting. But we were bewildered in a sense as to why we had such a high level of contact initially with signaling and multiple uh, different visual displays, golden globe I mentioned, red orbs, these strange atmosphere. We thought that somehow we had attracted the phenomena to us. And <clears throat> I had that opinion for many years. <clears throat> However, 2006, when I was working in the emergency room, I interviewed a former maintenance engineer for the Department of Energy site. And I was told a story that indicated that UFO sightings have been going on for a very long time, uh, likely at that Department of Energy site. A little bit of history. The Department of Energy site was set up in the 1950s and it was a highly secure base. One of the uh, contact activists was a physician in my group, Dave Gordon. He was uh, a great asset on my team because the guy had a near photographic memory and he had read almost every UFO book that, that had ever been written. He also was board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics, and he was a private pilot to, to boot. So yeah. this very high powered, individual um, had a patient who was old in the 1990s, he was an old guy already. And he said that when he, uh, when the base was built in the fifties, they virtually emptied the mountain for a month or no, actually it was two months, six days a week, a line of dump trucks that were three to five miles long emptied the mountain and took the dirt out and took it away. So, and he was actually a carpenter by, skill and he said that he was allowed to work on the base eight levels down he had a security clearance but below that eight levels into the mountain there was probably another eight or 20 he didn't ever know his security clearance wasn't high enough to work below eight levels underground so to give you an idea of how important this base was in the 1980s i was a physician activist in the group international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war IPPNW. I mentioned that we had won the Nobel Prize in 1985 as a, an attempt to bring Soviet American doctors together to educate the public about the dangers of nuclear war. Well, when, one of the things we got a hold of when the Cold War ended was a strategic war fighting map of, from the former Soviet Union. And what it was was a, a map of Los Angeles and written in Russian. And I could read Russian, I studied in college, was all the bases that were scheduled for nuclear attack by the Russians. And sure enough, in the northwestern corner was uh, in Cyrillic, it said Santa Susana. So that base was targeted for nuclear attack by the Russians during the Cold War. And it had, it had played a major role in the development of this, the uh, space shuttle. And during the 70s, late 60s, 70s, they used to test the, the rocket engines for the space shuttle on top of the mountain. Of that was hollowed out to build the base. And you could see it across the entire San Fernando Valley. 
They also had a nuclear reactor that was a research lab reactor. And in the 1950s, a terrible event occurred. There was a partial meltdown and release of plutonium into the environment. Now, uh, plutonium has a half-life of about 17,000 years. And is, it, is the most, <laughs> oh, it, has the mo it is the most deadly radioactive nucleotide because if you ingest as little as a picogram of this material into your lung, it has enough radiation that it could cause lung cancer in 10 or 20 years. So this caused uh, quite a stir in the surrounding, surrounding communities. And as a physician activist, I was part of an anti-nuclear coalition uh, that was called Bridge the Gap that tried to co coerce the federal government to clean up that site. And that was the very site that I was operating nearby uh, when these events occurred. So now fast forward to 2006, I'm in my, I've, I've, I'm no longer part of the CE5 initiative, as I mentioned, I resigned in 1998 over personal and political reasons, but still very interested in the subject and working with Rama and independent contact actors. So I'm in my emergency room and a guy comes in who needs to be admitted, elderly African-American gentleman in his 60s. And uh, it was a slow day in the ER. So I figured I'd uh, ask him about his occupation because I had an interest in industrial toxicology uh, and was interested in the diseases of occupations. So I said, what was your occupation? He said, I worked for the government. And that kind of went, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. If you work for, if you, if you talk to someone who's a postal worker, they say, I work for the United States Postal Service, forest ranger, I work for the park service. When someone says I worked for the government, that suggested possible security involvement, uh, intelligence or military. So I said, uh, well, what was your occupation? He said, I was a maintenance engineer at the Department of Energy site in the Santa Susana Pass. Now maintenance engineers are jack of all trades. They're carpenters, they can do electrical work. Um, they um, work on maintaining all aspects of the plant. And he said that his job routinely was to monitor the flow of water to the base. And they had these enormous towers filled with water that would bring uh, water down the mountainside to both the labs on the surface as well as underground. And because they had a nuclear accident back in the 50s, flow of water was very important to maintain cooling for any reactor or other experiments. So water was a critical component to the work of that lab. So I said to him, have you ever had a sighting of a UFO? And this was something very strange because we're right there all by ourselves in this little cubbyhole of a room just big enough for a gurney, which he was on, a defibrillator machine, and a, a place where I could sit in a hospital tray. It was very small space. Even though it was just the two of us and the door was closed, he goes like this. He looks around. <laughs> make sure there's nobody, no one can hear what he's about to say. And now I'm getting really excited. He said, yeah, I did have a sighting at work. And what happened was 1989, a year or two, maybe three, before we started doing field work there, the alarms go off. And all of a sudden, they see from, they're, they're in the control room, that water is being, is, is being lost in one of these big pipes that come down. And this is a, an important, potentially critical thing. So he knew the drill. He and his coworker grabbed machetes and weed whackers 
and they start following these large pipes to see where there was a break because the, the, the area is built on sandstone, which crumbles. And periodically there would be landslides and the pipes would be broken uh, when there'd be landslides on these very steep inclines. So he was following these pipes down the hillside, cutting away the grass, uh, chaparral, keeping an eye out for rattlesnakes. It's, it's perilous occupation. Uh, we found about that ourselves when we encountered rattlesnakes in the same area. So we're going, he's going down the mountain with his buddy and finally they get to a place where it's a clearing and they see where the water was broken. It's in the middle of the clearing and the water's shooting up like a, like a geyser. And they rush over and the, he expected to see some boulder or rock cracking the pipe in a jagged edge. What he found was it was clearly cut in sharp lines, a section of the pipe was cut out as if by a precision tool or a laser. And as he's looking at this very shocking demonstration that someone has sabotaged the pipe, they look across and about 100, 200 feet away, they see a metallic disc spinning silently, 15, 20, 25 feet across maybe, 20 feet off the ground. And it's just sitting there waiting as if you know, to see what they're gonna do. So they get, on the squawk, they get on the squawk box and they call security, the guys with the M16 machine guns. And they say, uh, we're down here, we found the breakage, but there's a flying saucer. So security says to them, whatever you do, don't approach the craft, which was kind of funny because they're shaking. That's the last thing they were gonna do. And before the security team got, strike team got down there with the machine guns, uh, the crafts turned on its side and with a roar, it had been silent up till then and some roar blasted at tremendous speed and disappeared within seconds. So on the basis of that account and on the basis of our knowledge that the intelligence behind the phenomena shows a great interest in anything that has to do with nuclear, whether nuclear power, nuclear weapon storage facilities like the Rendlesham Forest, uh, nuclear missile silos like the Montana sightings that occurred in the 1967s that Robert Salas has told us about, or the testing of nuclear missiles that um, Robert um, Jacobs describes in terms of a sighting that he had where a nuclear uh, a missile that was uh, being tested for use in possible nuclear war was actually the warhead, dummy war had been destroyed. So we know from the excellent work of Robert Hastings in a book and also a video called UFOs and Nukes, that the intelligence behind this phenomena shows a great deal of interest in these type of facilities. And therefore, I suspect we probably were not the, the, the main cause of the phenomena manifesting in, in that place because they had been there for decades already. And they interacted with us, which was very welcome, but I'm not sure that they, it was. we were party crashers in the sense that they were already there observing yeah. the bits. Yeah, actually, uh, one of my friends, uh, he goes under the handle, uh, the Hermetic Penetrator. He actually wrote a, an article um, called Baiting the Trickster. And uh, it was an article written about um, the kind of interaction with UFOs and nuclear facilities and mm -hmm. or nuclear, uh, anything nuclear, basically, and uh, nuclear carriers. And in that article, he highlighted um, a, uh, a quote, I believe, by Luis Elizondo and, and all these intelligence people um, 
were referenced as well, but uh, you know where they had you know, the U.S. government had essentially baited uh, the phenomenon by using some kind of nuclear source to see if I guess the phenomenon would would come to that and and uh, essentially or apparently worked according to some of these witnesses. So that's a really interesting. Uh, he jokingly in the article called it CE6 because, you know, baiting, they baited the phenomenon, or, you know, as a way of interaction and in a sense, and it worked. So uh, that, that's a really interesting article. If you ever, um, I'll, I'll, I'll have to put a link for it in description. It's actually one of the best articles written in, in the last year or so. Um, I'll, I'll send that to you when we're done because it's a, it's a great, um, it's a great article. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, there's a long history of that. And um, actually over by me, uh, th there were some reports. It hasn't been highlighted so much in, in the UFO literature. Uh, I think it was mentioned mildly, though. Um, Indian Point has some activity uh, with, with UFO encounters. So that, you know. Why don't you tell the audience uh, where that is? Tell the audience where that is, Indian Point. Oh, Indian Point. So yeah, I'm in I'm in New York, and Indian Point is like <laughs> right around the corner from me. Uh, it's an interesting area, and it's a, you know it's nuclear power generation. So how old, um, how, old, how old is it? Oh, I don't even know. I don't know. Do you know how old it is? Very old. Yeah, I didn't, so I didn't even know that. But I I've as long as I've been alive, it's been around over here. They have, they, have a, they have a specific life. They have to be decommissioned, which poses risks for the surrounding communities, obviously. Yeah, soon, I think. Um, like in another year, they they had a, they decommissioned, I think, part of it and they're doing it in stages. Um, so that's uh, yeah, it's a, that's a big issue. I was surprised when they actually went ahead and they, they did that. Right. And I, I believe that was with the Cuomo. Um, but getting getting back to what people want to listen to UFOs, <laughs> um, you also had some experiences, um, some other experiences in your early days with the uh, human initiated contact events. Um, so, uh, did you want to go over some of those as well? Let's 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 move forward a little bit. Yeah. Because um, the two themes that I want to develop uh, here is the consciousness connection. Uh, which is again manifested uh, repeatedly. And this is the core of the, what makes human initiated contact events possible, the, the interaction of, of minds. And although we like to have confirmation with signaling back and forth, uh, the, the mental interactions are play a predominant role in our contact work. And I, I mentioned before, and I'll mention again, I'm, I'm sure many in the audience will accept this, that the intelligences that we're engaged in, engaged with, are totally telepathic. They can access our consciousness as readily as you and I access light at home by turning on a wall switch. And given this consciousness connection, can manifest itself in a multitude of ways. And what we experience in the first month of our contact work, and I'll, I want to say a little bit more about those mystery lights in the Santa Susana Pass because we sent a team up there to try to find where those lights had, had been positioned. And I had imagined that there would be electricity, running water. I didn't know what was behind the lock gate because it was a, I had never been to Rocky Peak State Park where those lights were positioned. 
shining down at us. And apparently to get to the place where the lights were positioned, you had to rock climb over rattlesnake infested uh, boulders and work your way to the cliff, which was very steep. There was no way that people could generate those kinds of lights with ordinary battery operated lights. They would have had to have a generator and some equipment to move. The only road was a fire road that went up to the Rocky Peak and it was located at least 200 feet, 300 feet away from the place where the rocks, where the, the lights were positioned on the, on the ridge line. So that confirmed that the signaling, although it wasn't a UFO in the sky, it was truly anomalous and that no conventional light could have been readily positioned there. So that's, I wanted to add that. So moving along, that for, I mentioned in the uh, first talk that we had other acknowledgements of the consciousness connection. And I, I hear a sound in the background. Uh, are, you, are you picking that up? Um, I, don't, I don't hear it on my end. What does it sound like? It sounds like a piece of power equipment. I don't, it sounds good on my audio. Okay, that's fine. All right, we'll just cut, cut that. I don't know, maybe it's coming in from, from my mic. In any case, so, so the consciousness connection was evident because people on my team started having sightings uh, in highly congruent ways, not while we were doing field work, but while we were in our own vehicles driving. One of which occurred for me, September 4th, 1992. Now, this is a little bit uh, about uh, UFO politics. When we started uh, the CE5 initiative, the major organization was, and to a certain extent still is today, the Mutual UFO Network. That group has been in existence since 1969, uh, and they focus primarily on sightings as their research. Now, from my point of view, they really aren't investigating UFOs. What they are doing is collecting and analyzing sighting reports. Whereas we, oh, in the CE5 initiative, as well as Rama and all the other independent groups that are operating, are actually researching the phenomenon in the sense that we are directly engaged with it. So that's an important consideration. And the amount of information that people can get from having their own sightings as investigators and also having communications, can the amount of information is much greater than what you can get by interviewing someone who had a sighting a week, a year, 10 years, 20 years ago. So I was very excited about being in the, this new way of approaching the UFO phenomena. And I was invited to a prestigious UFO study group where the old gray hairs were there, senior researchers. Anne Druffel was there who's uh, written a series of remarkable books about the UFO phenomena. She wrote up the Tahunga Canyon sightings in the, in the 80s. And she also wrote a book uh, about uh, famous James McDonald, a famous scientist, atmospheric Oh, scientist, wow, wow, yeah. Firestorm. So she was head of the UFO study group. And I was invited because I was a physician and they were trying to attract people of high credibility, professional people to do a research. However, I was kind of, shall we say, little stuck up because I went into the meeting thinking, oh, these guys, they're just so old fashioned. They're over the hill. You know, this new generation of contact activists were going to 
take the citadel of UFO research by storm because we were engaging in the phenomena. And although I didn't say we thank you for your service, like, you know, they're has-beens, I, <laughs> I communicated that to them in a, in a rather somewhat adolescent way. Uh, I was wet behind the collar because they had been investigating UFOs for decades and I was head of, heading a team that was in operation for about two weeks or 10 days at the time. So, so in any case, it was clear that I was not going to ever be invited back to their uh, prestigious UFO study group. So as I'm driving home from the San Fernando Valley and separating San Fernando Valley to Los Angeles Basin is the Sepulveda Pass. The cliffs go up about 607, 600, 700 feet. And there's a super highway. And then it was about 10 lanes. I think it's, they've expanded to 10 to 11 or 12, 12, 12 lanes. So it's this enormous river of concrete pouring through this, this Sepulveda Pass. And as I'm driving and, you know, feeling that I had done the, the right thing and fought the good fight and told those old fuddy-duddies, you know, where it was at. <laughs> I see a blue-green light approaching slowly across Los Angeles Basin. And as I may have mentioned in our previous discussion, when you view anything at night in Los Angeles, you could, any aircraft, you can immediately see its silhouette because there's so much light pollution from the city. Yeah that it reflects back from the marine layer because we have cloud cover practically every night with yeah. clouds coming in. So you can see a perfect, you can see a helicopter, you can see a jetliner, small plane. It's very easy to identify at night because there's so much light reflecting from above silhouetting the craft. But this blue-green light uh, was coming towards me in a kind of meandering way, almost serpentine, moving maybe 10 or 15 miles an hour. It was not attached to a helicopter. It was moving too slow to be a conventional aircraft. And it flew overhead uh, and it was about maybe a hundred feet above the, the edge of the canyon. So when I got home, I said to my wife, there's good news and bad news, Yael. The bad news is I'm never gonna be invited to the UFO study group again. But the good news is I just saw a UFO. So that was sighting number one. About two and a half weeks later, I think it was maybe September 24th, a second sighting occurred. And this was a broad daylight sighting of a metallic disc. I mentioned Dave Gordon, who was in the family practice department of our medical sister medical center. I was in Panorama City, he was in Woodless Hills. His wife, Eve Gordon, was an internist and also an immunologist, an allergy physician. And at one point she actually became uh, head of her department. So she was hearing all this propaganda from her husband, Dave, who was on the team about these exciting sightings we're having. It's so exciting. And her attitude was kind of, um, you know, don't bother me. We've got our profession. We've got our kids. Uh, let's just focus on the real world. But he was also a private pilot and she did like going to air shows with him. And over the course of going to many air shows, she became very proficient in identifying any kind of conventional craft. Was there, the air shows would have different styles of airplanes. And her husband was trying to fly every one that he could. So as she's driving home across the San Fernando Valley south, she looks up over the Santa Monica Mountains and she sees a metallic disc glittering in the sun. And she knows it's not the Goodyear blimp. It's hovering. She can see its silhouette perfectly. It's a veritable flying saucer. That's sighting number two. 
she and I both were driving south when this happened. The third sighting was the most spectacular of them all. Dotha Weyburn, I mentioned, uh, was uh, one of the uh, senior members of our team. She was in her 60s, but she was a skilled observer because her family was very wealthy. They had a yacht. So she sailed the seven seas as a yachtswoman, and she became proficient in navigating and also identifying conventional uh, prosaic phenomena by, by stars, aircraft, whatever. She was a very skilled observer. She had just attended a meditation seminar and which broke up at around nine o'clock at the night, I think it was September 25th. So as she's driving home and her house was perched on this cliff with a spectacular view of the Pacific Ocean. And she lived in a wealthy community called Palace Verdes. It was like Beverly Hills, except on the ocean very ritzy and she's driving up this long driveway to get to this house on the hill she sees a light above her house and she had never seen such a light before and as she approached the light started coming down to meet her along this long driveway and as it got closer she saw it was a 25 30 foot glowing mother of pearl luminescent globe and as the globe flew by her, she got the telepathic communication. You were looking for us, meaning during field work. Well, here we are. It then changed direction and went out across the Pacific. So these three sightings occurred within the first month of us going into the field. They were highly congruent. We were all in our vehicles alone. We were all uh, traveling south. And there was an escalation of the power of these sightings where I had seen just an anomalous nocturnal light, it then became a daylight broad sighting of a metallic disc. And the third sighting to top off this, this trio was a structured object that maneuvered, got within less than a hundred feet of her and there was telepathic communication. In other words, the intelligence behind the phenomena was saying, we recognize your field work. Not only that, but we can find you at any time and any place and stage a human initiated contact event if you and we so desire. Now you can say, well, why did Eve Gordon get the sighting? It was Dave, her husband, who was on the team. Well, as soon as she had the sighting, she was gung-ho, immediately wanted to join the team. And she was a wonderful asset for us because she had done meditation uh, and there was something about her that was extremely spiritual compared to the guys who were more nuts and bolts. She played the harp. And I couldn't figure out why she was selected as a, a witness to this sighting of a metallic disc. One day I was in the off, I was in the, the Gordon's home because we were having a meeting. And one of the things we did was we had business meetings in between our sightings where we would discuss the latest information that came from Asheville, North Carolina, where Dr. Greer was. And we'd also go over the protocols because in those days they were fairly rigid with buddies and uh, set schedules of meditation. So I'm at the Gordon's home and my beeper goes off and I have to call the emergency room. And uh, Eve at that point was not on the team yet. Uh, and I didn't, there wasn't, there was a phone in the living room where the meeting was, but there was no other, we didn't have cell phones back then, or if we did, they were gigantic, like they looked like walkie talkies. So I said to Dave, I got to call the ER, 
oh, where's another extension? And he said to me, oh, just go into the, the den and you, there's an extension there. And I, I heard Eve was playing the harp, beautiful music. She was uh, an accomplished amateur. And I told Dave, Dave, I don't wanna go in the den. She, I don't, I'll disturb her, she's making beautiful music. And then he said something that I'll never forget. He said, don't worry. You can go make your call because when she's playing her music, she's in a trance. And then the light went on inside me. I said, oh, okay. Eve Gordon was able to access consciousness in its most unbounded form while she played the music on a regular basis. That was her meditation equivalent. And that facilitated the consciousness connection between her. Also, I'll point out that of, of these three sightings, two of them were highly significant in terms of the work we were doing. I had just uh, somewhat immaturely fought the good fight in inter, uh, engaging with MUFON people promoting human initiated contact. So they staged the event just after that. And Dotha's sighting, the last one was significant in that she had just left a meditation seminar and meditation was one of the ways we accessed, accessed consciousness in its unbounded form in order to facilitate telepathic communication. And of course, Eve was able to do it not only through meditation, but also through her music. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned that these events, uh, did you also want to go into um, 1993 with Sasha as well? I think we're going to leave that because I'm going chronic okay. chronologically. Uh, okay, okay. I'm trying to yeah. give in a series of lectures with great deal of detail the, the, the full experience of what it was like back in the old days. And so moving along, last time we did talk about, I'm going to leave out some of these sightings that we can discuss. At some point, I want to go over all the details about how our teams were uh, I won't say interfered with, but we were under heavy surveillance. And I'll, that will be a theme that I want to develop because it, it also allow us to get in to a little more detail, Dr. Greer's special relationship with the intelligence services. Uh, yeah. And they, they, I mean, it's very complicated and somewhat problematic. At one point early in the, 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 the field work, uh, Dr. Greer said to me, what do you think the idea of us having a, a group of intelligence officers or military people being a formal CE5 team? And I was somewhat taken aback. And I said to him, well, you're certainly free to, to do that. You are the CSETI director. But you see, I had been having interactions with the intelligence services, uh, the FBI, because I was, a, I was a sort of American dissident and so our peace and social justice movements were under fairly consistent surveillance by police, both Los Angeles, the so-called Red Squad, though we were not Reds, we were peace and social justice. And also the FBI had files on all the major peace and social justice organizations. So, and, and because I was active in terms of supporting the third world nations that were trying to establish a better situation for their people. I had worked with student groups in Latin America and so solidarity with workers and students movements who were often being persecuted by military regimes that the CIA had an open relationship with in terms of training to repress movements for social change. So I had a, a left-wing political slant to, to 
into my worldview. And I told Dr. Greer he was free to do, to have intelligence operatives past or even current as a part of a, a working group, but that would be the end of my involvement with CSETI. I, I, you know, if he wanted to do that, he could, but I would have to resign. And then he laughed and made it was like a joke. No, he was just kidding. You know, it was, but he, I think he had re working relationship with those people already. And the thought had occurred to whether they were gonna form a team with Dr. Greer and be part of our network. But as far yeah. as I know, that never happened. Uh, Did he say why he wanted to do that? I assumed that because they were helping him develop, that was the beginning of Project Starlight, which led to the Disclosure Project. Uh, and if you read Managing Magic, you'll see that this was a consistent pattern, not only with Dr. Greer, but Bill Moore in the 1980s and Tom DeLonge. He didn't spell it out. He, saw, he sort of laughed it off like he wasn't serious, but he was, in my opinion. And I, I, just, I just did not want to have that element in our, our network. I, I did not feel we could trust people like that uh, because their, their allegiance is not to some higher cause like one planet, one people, but to defend the constitution and under the direct control of the executive branch, which means the president of the United States. And I did not want to have that level of potential interference with our network. So anyway, that's, that's a little aside. But so, so we were doing contact work, um, Los Angeles team, December 2000, correction, December 1992, the Phoenix team went into operation. And in Mexico, I mentioned in the show, the first show, that we had a series of incredible sightings. One of which I did not mention was that I had a sighting of a broad daylight disc on the edge of the volcano. This was after we had this encounter with this triangular shaped craft that was two, maybe 300 feet across. And I, I described that in detail, that sighting. But I, I saw a metallic disc go towards the volcano, there was a cloud perched on the edge of the volcano, on the, on the side of the volcano. I saw this metallic disc, which was glittering in the sun, approach the cloud. And to give the audience an idea of how shocking it is to see a flying saucer, um, I, my mind kept trying to make it into a conventional plane. I said, that, that can't be what I'm seeing even though I had been doing contact work and preparing for that, I said, it's gotta have wings. There were no wings. It's gotta have a, ta a tail rudder. There was no tail rudder. I said, well, maybe there's wings, but I'm looking edge on and that's why I don't see the wings. Yeah. No, there were rectangular portholes. I can't say whether it was silent or not because we were outside uh, a restaurant uh, at the base of the volcano and they were playing mariachi music, which was so loud. I mean, I can't tell what, it, but it, they yeah. were, the thing flew into a cloud and it was moving about 200 knots, maybe 250. The cloud was right on the edge of the volcano and I expected it would crash into the volcano from its flight. It went into the cloud and disappeared. Didn't come out the other side of the cloud. It didn't crash, just went into the cloud and we didn't see it again. So when I got back from Mexico, I was really all jazzed up. I was so excited about the sightings. And so I started telling anyone I could about what had happened in Mexico. And I, for a period of time, I worked in the coordination center, which was a, a desk job where I would coordinate, as an ER physician, I would coordinate the movement of ambulances all across Southern California. When a Kaiser patient, I was 
Kaiser Permanente physician. Kaiser patient showed in another emergency room. We would contact them according to protocol. If it was safe, we would transport that patient back. So I would have lots of free time to talk to the nurses and the other doctor working at this coordination center. It was a desk job. I noticed that every time I started talking about UFOs, I heard a ringing in my right ear, a low pitched ringing, ring, and it was uncanny. I waited half an hour, an hour, I'd have another conversation. And as soon as I started saying what I did in Mexico with the team, ring, this went on for a couple of weeks. Now, as a physician, I can tell you that my hearing was normal at that time. You know, that was almost 30 years ago. Now I'm, I'm somewhat hearing impaired, but I, I did not have vertigo. I did not have any uh, tinnitus, which is the ter term for ringing. I never had ringing before in my ears. I was not exposed to loud noise, but this was linked to consciousness as if the intelligence behind the phenomena could stimulate the, the, uh, the auditory nerve directly. And that suggesting indeed there was a consciousness link with them, even as I was working at the coordination care center. Now this went on for a month and I was delighted uh, because you know I knew it wasn't uh, it wasn't a manifestation of disease, but it wasn't a manifestation of the consciousness link. And I add this story because I want the audience. I assume many of you are going to be contact workers. If you have done contact work, or you will just to be sophisticated and open to the fact that this intelligence can create illusions not only in the sky but auditory illusions as well. And we'll, we'll get into that perhaps. There's a spectacular case I wanna share about what happened to my friend, Wayne Peterson. So I was very sad when the ringing stopped, but years later, I was watching a television program and I was after a night shift and I was lying in bed, covers up to my neck. And I was watching a, a program about a, the first time a nuclear submarine allowed a, a film crew to come in. It was an attack submarine, they had missiles. And so I was watching this PBS or Nova show. And at one point uh, in the discussion, they had the chief sonar operator being interviewed by the film crew. And he was, he was explaining the sophistication of their sonar. They could tell the difference between porpoise, the sound of every single craft. He said, every craft had a unique sonar signal. And as soon as he said that, my right ear went ring, ring, as if to say that the consciousness connection was still there and to make a link between sound uh, that would identify a terrestrial craft underwater and sound used by beings who presumably are staging events for us in non-terrestrial craft in the sky. So I wanted to share that vignette in terms of the- Yeah, there's actually- there's actually been a lot of reports of, you know, ear ringing with some kind of contact experience, um, you know, whether it be sightings or some kind of messages or downloads. Um, the, the Mexico event, um, are, are the people from that event still around? Um, Sherry did pass away. Um, Sherry Adamak was on the team. There were five of us. Uh, Dr. Greer is still alive. I'm still alive. There was Jeff Baker, who was a um, construction manager. He was about my age. I assume he's still alive. And there was um, 
Dr. Barbie Taylor, PhD psychologist. Uh, up until a year or two ago, I heard she was still living in the um, in the Nevada, Las Vegas area. So I think I think of us, four of the five are still alive. Dr. Greer wrote a very detailed report about that event, which is available online. You just look. I wrote a, a shorter one called the Mexico City Sightings. You can just put my name and write Mexico City Sightings. You can get a report on Google. But his report was more definitive, about 15, 20 pages. Okay, um, well, yeah. And I mentioned the last time that we tried to get video evidence of our encounter. And for some reason, all our video equipment, our film cameras, everything were, were jammed during that event. Yeah. Uh, and for those people who want to hear about in more detail, they can listen to our first program where I discussed what happened uh, February 2nd or February 1st. 1993 at the base of Capitol volcano, 7,000 feet. We had this sighting of a large triangular-shaped craft. So, so people are still alive, but they, they were, we are dying out. Um, Alex Ayers was a very important person in my contact team. He was the one, the Harvard graduate, who told me how I should signal at the craft. He had gotten that as a um, shall we say a telepathic override, he gave me instructions to use the exact signaling sequence that I described. He passed away. Uh, uh, also Shirley Jones, who uh, was in her Astro van driving across the San Fernando Valley when her vehicle was shaken violently, she passed away as well. So we're, there's still, some of us are running around, but uh, as time goes on, uh, fewer. And that's why I'm so grateful that the next generation of contact workers are getting a chance to hear some of these stories. And I thank you, James, for giving me this vehicle. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're, we're a little over an hour now. Um, you wanna continue on um, with the rest for the next talk? Um, I can just say one more thing because I mentioned um, the virtual experience model and <clears throat> What happened in 1993 was we had this prolonged field investigation workshop um, that CSETI sponsored at Ropes and Mining World. Ropes and Mining World is about 60 miles east of uh, Phoenix and it's in the Sonoran Desert, beautiful, pristine location. It's a, a resort spa at the site of an old mine and, you, and, and they have the collection of mining equipment. They boast the world's largest collection of antique mining equipment. So you see these excavators and bulldozers and all this stuff there. So it was an in-depth workshop and the number of important interactions occurred. High strangest events, which at the time were somewhat frightening to, to members of our, of our teams. There were 60 of us. Was, it was the largest training that had ever CSETI had up until that time. And we were divided into groups of 20. One of the high strangest events happened when the CSETI director, Dr. Greer, was giving, brought us all together in camps, campfire. And he was talking about the work we were doing, was briefing us in terms of the contact protocols. And what we observed was something I'd never seen before or since, wild jackrabbits. Yeah were running up to our uh, circle surrounding Dr. Greer and they were 
standing on their hind legs inside our circle of 60 contact activists. And we're looking at the CSETI director, which was bizarre. And then they were, the bunnies were also running between our legs. They were like, these are very wild animals. The owner of Ropes and Winding World said they never approach people because many people shoot at them. Uh, and so they were very wary of contact with humans. But there was something about the energy of these 60 contact workers that brought them to, to uh, our, our circle. Now, that was one high strangest event. Another high strangest event was uh, what I call invisible footsteps. There were two uh, California contact workers who were late uh, getting to the field, and they were on my team. And as we went out to the, the research sites from the spa, it was about a 15 minute walk. And every time I passed this one particular location where there was a, a gate that was radio controlled so that the people in the spa could open and close the gate automatically. Right before you hit the gate, I felt this what could be only described as manifestation or presence of consciousness. Now, I didn't discuss this, but it's a very important thing for contact workers to be aware of. And that is, is that when contact is imminent or is ongoing, you can feel the presence of another mind. And the best way you can describe it is, think back to a time when you were a kid playing hide and go seek and a cousin or a friend of yours would be in a room out of sight. You'd look under the bed, they weren't there. You looked at the closet, they weren't there. But you knew that somebody was there. You felt the presence of a person, even though you couldn't hear or see or smell them. And then if you, of course, go into the closet and start moving the clothes, it's tucked in one corner as your cousin and the person is there. So that sense of awareness of another mind was something that I experienced on a regular basis during contact work. And it was always welcome. But in this particular place, um, Ropes and Mining World, the presence of consciousness when I got to the gate was so powerful that I virtually had to stop and look around. So these two women were late to going out into the field. They drove their vehicle and they got to the gate and they felt the same presence of consciousness. And they got out of their vehicle and they listened and what they heard surprised them and somewhat frightened them. Even though it was pitch black, middle of the desert, they heard the sounds of what they thought was either an animal or a human moving through the brush, stepping on the chaparral, uh, moving around the cactuses, which were very sharp needles. And they became frightened because they realized that it wasn't just one set of footsteps coming towards them. There were multiple footsteps. And because they were tuned the possibility that we could interact with the non-human intelligences. They said, you're scaring us, whoever you are, please stop. And to their surprise, the sound of something or someone moving towards them from multiple locations stopped. Then after a while, they got some courage and they said, okay, sort of like Simon says, you know, yeah. we're feeling better. Why don't one of you come forward? And so they heard the sound of someone or something moving through the brush towards them. They did not see a coyote or a being or anything, but it was a sound, a, a, perhaps a simulated sound of, of a movement towards them. So 
when the, when we found out about this, they sent uh, we I went out to the site, and it was somewhat uh, frightening to have multiple, if you want to call them beings or point sources of an auditory illusion moving back and forth through the brush. This happened all night to multiple people on the teams. And I give this as a vignette to notify contact workers of the richness and the diversity of contact experiences that can occur that are interactive. Now, do I think there were invisible beings moving through the brush? Probably not. Do I think it was more a simulation using technology uh, that could interact with our eighth uh, cranial nerve, the auditory nerve? Yes, because there were other signs that that's exactly what they were doing. And I'll give an example. We worked in circles of guided meditation, groups of 20. One particular contact worker, Kathy Kaminsky, and we were empowered to develop our own uh, guided meditations or use Dr. Greer. So at one point, Kathy Kaminsky was leading a guided meditation and half of the group was on her left side and the other half was on her right side as in a circle. And so at one point she said, all those, she said to whoever the beings are out there, at this point, we now ask you to show uh, some sign or some manifestation of your, of your presence. And what happened was at that point, all the people on the right side of the circle heard a ringing in their right, right ear, or, or her left side, yeah. All, of, about eight or nine of them heard a ringing, ring. And that was the side of the circle that was closest to that point of high strangeness that was down the road behind the lock gate. The other half of the circle did not hear the ringing. So they were able to effectively target an anomalous sound, ringing sound in multiple contact workers and able to select the group that was closest to that place of high strangeness. Uh, I, this is a little complicated. Am I communicating? What, what yeah, yeah. So, so the, 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 not only does the UFO intelligence have the capacity to interact by presenting holograms or uh, visual illusions, these are not hallucinations, by the way. From the medical point of view, hallucination is a disease state. Either you're toxic or you've been from sepsis or you've been poisoned or you an alcoholic going through DTs or you're on a hallucinogen or you have a thought disorder. Those are hallucinations. These are visual displays that are technologically mediated illusions. So let's not throw out the, the word hallucination. Oh, he's hallucinating. No, these are not hallucinations. So I'm gonna leave the uh, group with one more vignette that has to do with auditory illusions. And this is one of the most powerful contact events that demonstrated the consciousness connection. Wayne Peterson, I mentioned, was the working group coordinator in Phoenix. Sadly, a few years ago, he passed away. But he had an excellent team. They had many pilots, many excellent meditators, the heavy hitters that could really establish a consciousness connection. One night, uh, he was out in the Sonoran Desert, about 30 miles, 40 miles outside of Phoenix, where, they, where he was based. And if you're in one location, 
for any length of time over multiple investigations, you get a feel for the sky. You know what the air traffic is, 747s going over, military jets, private planes. It's After a while, you can become very skilled in identifying the difference between a 747 and a military jet or you know prop planes. So he's out with his team and it's, I think it's overcast. It's not much happening. Maybe partial clouds. <clears throat> then they're watching the sky and they hear the sound of a 747 going overhead. It's a typical sound that they've heard many times before. From horizon to horizon, they tracked it. But there were no lights. But they definitely heard the sound and they could see the sky. A while later, they hear a sound tracking horizon to horizon, but it's not the sound of aircraft. It's the sound of a Mack truck, a diesel engine. Boom, 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 boom. Horizon to horizon. They don't see a, a Mack truck flying in the sky, needless to say. The final event is, is so dramatic and start, startling. I'll tell you that Wayne, when he was a little boy, he used to visit his grandpa in Michigan or somewhere in the Midwest. And he, his grandpa used to let him drive the old World War II style tractor. It had a clanking sound. He'll never forget it. The third anomalous event was he heard a sound. Everyone in the team heard a sound. It went from horizon to horizon, but only one person on the team was able to recognize it. It was Wayne, because it was the exact replica of the sound of that World War II style diesel tractor that he rode on some 25, 30 years before when he was a child. What does that say? To me, it says that not only can this consciousness access your mind as readily as you and I turn on light by turning on a wall switch, but they can reach into an individual contact experience, full storehouse of memories, extract a memory of a sound and play it back, not only to the contact experiencer, but to other people in the field. This is a display of psi capable, capability that is virtuoso. And with that dramatic story, I'd like to end the discussion for now. But in future discussions, I'd like to get into further details of the virtual experience model, one of which is producing visual displays that are not there. And clearly, they can produce auditory displays, either invisible footsteps moving through the brush or the sound of a World War II vintage tractor that only Wayne Peterson could recognize. Oh, uh, thanks for sharing that, Dr. Joe. Uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. Um, and I look forward to some of the, the future talks we're going to have here talking about the virtual experience model, uh, early um, uh, heist field work, and much more. So thank you for coming on again, Dr. Joe, and we'll see you again next time. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye.